0: Amen. Let's dig into the text this morning. Um, We are looking again at Matthew chapter 13. And before we get too far into that, I want to give a quick recap as to where we've gone. This is the fourth week in our series brand new, uh, The Nature of Salvation. It's a series where we've looked um, at some of the ways in which the gospel story is explained to us in scripture and unpacked for us in scripture. And one such way is the format of God, man, Christ. Response, also known as the gospel on the ground, a more personal and individual way of understanding the gospel. And the other format that we're going to explore starting next week is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And that's also known as the gospel in the air. The gospel on the ground, the gospel in the air. The gospel in the air is a format that takes a peek at what God is doing in the universe through the gospel, because he is not just doing something in us, in you. He is doing something cosmically um, through the gospel. And so that starts next week. So far, of course, we've been walking through the gospel on the ground, and we've learned about God, a God who is all-knowing and all-powerful and ever-present and perfect in all of his ways, and we've also learned about man. We've learned about us. We were created in the image and likeness of God with dignity and worth and purpose, but because of sin, um, we are now facing the eternal and holy wrath of God, and, and we are facing separation God, and that puts us all in a terrible dilemma. However, last week we discussed the answer to that dilemma, which is Christ, God's own very son, um, or God's very own son. He was the only one who, who was born into this world without sin since Adam and Eve were first created, and he lived a perfect life and satisfied God's holy wrath by absorbing it in our place on the cross of Calvary. And it was there that God's holy judgment was satisfied, and three days later, he arose from the grave, um, and, and, and and as he arose from the grave with all power in his hand, he called and beckoned people to submit their lives to him by faith. And as a result of submitting their lives to him by faith, they too would know eternal life. They would no longer know death. And so that was the, the, the answer that was found in Jesus Christ. And we discussed that last week. And it is to that response that Jesus acts for that we turn our attention to this morning. You know, Jesus, he died, he rose, and then He called for, he called for a response from those who looked to him. And that's the final theme in our gospel-on-the-ground format, God, man, Christ, responds. Now, there are a bunch of different responses. When you read through Scripture, there's a bunch of different ways in which people respond to the message of the gospel. It's normally, it's normally two ways, positively and negatively. Positively, with great joy and great desperation and great relief at hearing this message. But then there's also sometimes people respond negatively with great skepticism and great anger and great sadness. When you take, for example, the book of Acts, and you look at Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the gospel in the power of the Spirit of God, and as he is preaching the gospel, he is met with a response. In in chapter 2, verse 37, they heard it, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter, Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? In other words, what must we do to be saved? They heard the gospel, they believed the gospel, and they responded with desperation. What must we do to be saved? Now, on the flip side, if you look to Acts chapter 7, Stephen Stephen preaches the same gospel in the same power of the same spirit of God. And as he is preaching that gospel, he is met with a completely, radically different response in chapter 7, verse 54. It says in chapter 7, verse 54, now when they heard these things, the same gospel under the same power of the same Spirit of God, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. And then it goes on to say that they would no longer listen. They cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. In other words, as Stephen was speaking, they tried to shout him down and they covered their ears and they rushed him and then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Two radically different responses to the same gospel preached under the same power of the same spirit. And why is that? Well, it's like that because the message of the gospel is an exclusive message. It is declaring that there is eternal life and eternal judgment that awaits us on the other side. And, And the difference between the eternal life and the eternal judgment is an exclusive God that we must submit to. For the person that accepts this message through faith and repentance, it makes perfect sense why they would be filled with a sense of joy and a sense of gladness and a sense of desperation saying, what must I do to be saved? But for the person that rejects this message, it again makes perfect sense why they would be filled with grief and frustration and sadness and anger because what you're telling me is that if I don't accept this message, then eternal suffering is my destination, That's enough to get somebody angry. Amen? However, there's another set of responses that in some ways kind of fall in between these two polar opposites that I just described. And those responses can be found in Matthew 13 in the parable of the sower and the seed. There are four unique responses in this parable and all of them capture an audience somewhat giving the gospel a listen. This parable is about some people that are actually kind of, kind of listening in on what the gospel is all about. They aren't hostile per se. They aren't stoning or stringing up the messenger, and yet only one, only one of these responses in this parable walks away having received the message. Let's first talk about the sower and the seed. Verse 3 of chapter 13 says, and he told them many things in a parable saying, a sower went out to sow. Before we deal with the responses, it is important for us to understand who and what we are responding to. Said in another way, in this parable, we need to understand who is the sower and we need to understand what is the seed. In reading the parable, we learn a few things about the sower and the seed. When we look at verse 19, we learn what the seed is. Verse 19 of chapter 13 says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And what is, what is the word of the kingdom? Simply put, The word of the kingdom is the message of the gospel. It is saving good news of Jesus Christ. It is the story of God creating a perfect world only to have a man fall because of their own pride and sin and corrupt that perfect world. And God in his grace and in his providence spending the rest of human history redeeming that corrupt world through his son Jesus Christ. That is the seed. The message is the seed. So who is the sower? If the seed is the saving good news of Jesus Christ, it only makes sense that the sower is Christ himself or those who represent him, his apostles and his disciples, his evangelists, sharing sharing in his name. Those that are carrying his word forth, the word of the kingdom, to anyone who has ears to hear and listen. In fact, we come to know the sower in this text, based on the seed that is sown. The sower is paired with the seed. Anyone who comes along sowing a different seed than the word of the kingdom is not a sower that should be followed in this parable. We sometimes fall in the habit of determining who is a true sower using all the wrong factors to make the determination. We learn what the true sower is based on the seed that they, they are sowing in this text. Sometimes we incorrectly judge the legitimacy of a sower based on their style or based on their ability or based on their charisma or we we incorrectly judge the legitimacy of a sower based on their ability to perform great works and great acts or the level of closeness that we possess with that individual and everything else except for the thing of first importance and that is this, is the sower carrying the right seed? Is the sower preaching the kingdom of God? Is the sower preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? The Bible clearly tells us that many will come as sowers, but in reality will be nothing more than enemies of it, of the kingdom of God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 through 3 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are, are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. In other words, there are sowers that are in our world but they don't have the right seed. So one of the first tests in determining the legitimacy of the sower is by looking at the seed that is being cast out from him. Now, what is the soil in this text? This text shows us different types of soil. There are different people who are, and uh, I'm sorry, and the, and the soil represents different people who are given the opportunity to hear the gospel. Only one ends up in this text fully embracing the gospel message, but make no mistake about it, this is a, a, not a text only about your rank and foul unbeliever who never, who never sets foot in the church. This is not, this is not simply a text about your rank and foul um, um, atheist who, who speaks harshly and mocks the faith. In fact, this is a text about many of the people that appear in church on Sunday morning throughout this country and world. Many of these folks appear to be friendly to the gospel message. They appear to be receptive to the seed. They even appear at times in their life to be believers, but something or some things along the way knock them off course. So we know who the sower is, we know what the seed is, and we know who the soil represents. What else do you see in this text? Notice what doesn't change. The seed and the sower. The soil changes, but the seed and the sower don't change. They are constant in this story. They are not the variable. The soil is the variable. That's important. No apologies is made in this text for the seed not producing fruit in certain grounds. In other words, fruitfulness is not dependent on the sower all the time or the seed all the time. Oftentimes, fruitfulness is dependent on the soil in which the sower casts the seed upon. God sent his prophets on many occasions in the Old Testament to people that he already declared would not listen. As you read through this text, you learn that the soil, the soils are what creates the dilemmas. Some soils are conducive to change. Others are not. This is an extremely important lesson for gospel work, an extremely important lesson for evangelism and gospel ministry, an extremely important lesson for me to remember in my own life. So many well-meaning Christians try so hard to win converts that we end up changing the seed that we were supposed to sow in hopes that the different seed will do the trick and win. do 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 you track with that? Here's something that we must never forget when it comes to evangelism. What the soul is one with is what the soul will cling to. When a soul with entertainment, the soul will cling to entertainment. When a soul with performances, the soul will cling to performances. When a soul with half troops, the soul will cling to half troops. Here's what I mean some folks want to see a response so bad that they'll tell folks, Come to Jesus and your life will be better. Come to Jesus and you'll be more successful. Come to Jesus and you'll be more prosperous. Come to Jesus and you'll be more healthy or you'll be healthier. Come to Jesus and you won't have to suffer from depression any longer. Come to Jesus and you won't have to battle sin any longer. Or come to Jesus so you can come and hear top-tier motivational speeches for your life or be a part of a top-tier worship concert every week. And, of course, when they come based on those grounds, they are compelled to cling only to those grounds. I'm not saying there is nothing, uh, anything wrong at all with worship that is beautiful and that pursues excellence and, and, and preaching that all awe-inspiring and, and, and witty and interesting. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm also not saying that embracing Jesus won't make life better. It could bring more success. It could lead to a healthier life. It could lead to, uh, lead to better ways for you to deal with your, anxi- your anxiety and your, and your depression. But those aren't the main messages and takeaways of the gospel message. Those aren't the main takeaways from the word of the kingdom. So when we make them the main message, we should not be surprised if we experience a false growth that fades when those things can no longer be clung to. The only chance that we have for true fruitfulness, true enduring longevity in fruitfulness is if we rely on the right sower and the right seed. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel, the seed, is the power of God for salvation, not the performances, not the motivational speeches, not the tricks, not the trinkets, not the youth groups, not the the community groups. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so if you have all of that and you don't have the gospel, then you have people clinging to false things and thus achieving false growth. When the seed and the sower are properly reflected and the message is still rejected, it is not the seed and the sower that is the problem. It is the soil. It is the soil, which we now turn to and turn our attention to for the remainder of our time. The soil is indiscriminately casting seed, or the sower is indiscriminately casting seed on every soil. He's just going about, you know, and it's hidden some ground, hidden good ground, hidden thorny ground, hidden rocky ground, hidden the pathways. He's taking his chances in hopes that God will do a work in one or all of them. Jesus describes the first seed as the seed along the path, so to speak. Verse 4 it says, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path and birds came and devoured them. Verse 19 explains what Jesus meant. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. In ancient Palestine, the farming fields were surrounded by pathways that were, that were packed, packed down daily as a result of all the foot traffic from people going to and fro, and as a result of the hot sun bearing down on the ground. And these pathways... Prohibited the seed from sinking down, and so they were in clear vision for the birds to swoop down and eat them. These seeds were taken the moment that they were sown. And that's pretty much the man or woman who just hears the word of God in passing and pays no attention to it, or hears it and is not moved in any way by it. Their hearts are hardened, that, uh, so hardened that the word does nothing for them. First Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 18, tells us that to them it is foolishness. It makes no sense. Either they don't see their need for a Savior or they don't see their need to make Jesus their Savior, or they've already embraced something else in exchange for him as Savior. People who exhibit this type of heart could go to church and they could hear the Word of God preached in power, and the the moment the sermon is finished, you could walk up to them and ask them, what was the message about? And they would say, I don't know. Or they could even explain it, but seem to be unmoved as they explain it. These are the people that you evangelize and that you witness to, and it seems like everything that is being said, no matter how compelling and how convincing, turns into a useless debate. The enemy won't let the word set foot on or in their hearts. Jesus even has these people in mind when he speaks in parables. Just a few verses down in chapter 10 of, of, of chapter 13, verse 10, he says this the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Verse 11, and he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Listen, for to the one who has more, more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Jesus says that there are some people that you can speak to, and no matter how clear the message is, they still don't understand it. They still don't see it. They still can't comprehend it. It does not lock in their heart. The saints of God, these folks are everywhere. These folks are in our homes. These folks are at work. These folks are at school. And yes, these folks are in the church. There are plenty of folks that attend church regularly and possess no passion towards the gospel whatsoever. They may come to church because they enjoy the singing. They may come to church because they find the youth group activities healthy for their children, or they they may come to church because they enjoy the community, or they may come to church because they enjoy serving and they like to do something that feels bigger than themselves, or they may come to church because they they like the food that some people cook. But they are totally uh, and completely unfazed by the gospel, by the preaching of the gospel, by the word of the kingdom. And the saddest commentary of all concerning this group is that it is massive. It's a lot of people that fit that description. Now, most folks in this group know where they stand. They know they are interested. They're just kind of here to be here. But the next two groups in this passage aren't as easily discerned. Verse 5, it says this, other seeds fell on rocky ground. Where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Verse 20, Jesus explains what this means. He says, as for what was sown on rocky ground. This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. But what? Because of the lack of root. Because of the lack of root, verse 21. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This is not simply a description of soil with rocks in it, but rather it is describing a thin layer of soil that is covering bedrock underneath it. To the untrained eye, in other words, the soil looks fine. The soil appears suitable for for planting and yielding crop. The soil even allows for crop to sprout out of the ground faster than normal, appearing as though the soil not only has a great yield ahead, but a quick-producing yield ahead. Unfortunately, however, one doesn't notice that the only reason that that the crop is sprouting so fast is because it has no way to grow down. It has no way to establish the roots. See, beneath the surface, the bedrock is stunting the proper growth and nourishment of the crop. Listen, I simply cannot express how many times in my own Christian life I've seen this immediate excitement, immediate joy over the prospects of following Jesus. I mean, these are the folks that are running to you and saying, man, man, I just, I just want to serve. Man, wherever you plug me in, I'll be just happy to serve. And, and what can I do? And how can I do it? And they're, 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 they receive it with joy. But the cost has not been carefully considered. You've seen it. Maybe this used to be you. Maybe it's you right now. And you're not even aware of it. Let, let me describe it this way. Young girl breaks up with long-time boyfriend of five years, falls into deep depression. Girl goes to church one Sunday, hears about Jesus, the wonderful things that he can do, and all the pains and the hurts that he can heal. Music is playing, singers are singing, preacher is preaching, emotions are high, and with great joy, she accepts Jesus as her Lord so he can take the pain of her lost boyfriend away. She leaves the church on an emotional high, She's excited. She begins to serve the Lord with great passion and great desire. Fast forward six months. Church isn't as fun as it used to be. The word is boring as as it's ever been. And lo and behold, the old boyfriend is calling again. Seeking to reconcile, seeking to repair the relationship. Plus, all of her friends are mocking her now because she's turned to Christianity, teasing her about all the things that she's she's missing out on. She starts out slowly, creeping back into old habits. But before she knows it, her church attendance is floundering. She's back with her old friends, back with her old boyfriend. Fire has been quenched, doing her own thing, never to be seen from again. Backslider? No. No root. She wasn't saved to begin with. No root. Are you tracking with that? One preacher had this to say about the soul that is settled in rocky soil. He said, do you think any farmer would have a crop of corn next year unless he plowed now? You may as well expect a crop of corn on unplowed ground as a crop of grace until the soul is convinced of its being undone without a savior. Then he says this, that is the reason we have so many mushroom converts, so many persons that are always happy, 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 and never were miserable. Why? Because their stony ground is not plowed up. They have not got a conviction of the law, and thus they fall away. And so he, he ends by saying this, this makes me so cautious now, which I was not 30 years ago, of dubbing converts too soon. Now I wait a little and see if people will bring forth fruit. For there are so many blossoms which march winds blow away that I cannot believe they are converts till I see fruit brought forth. It's not that we don't celebrate the arrival of a soul into the kingdom of God, we do. But it's also the it's also reality that we are very cautious as we walk with those people. It's the reason why the Lord says don't appoint, us. Don't appoint um, someone into pastoral leadership too early, too quickly, too, ca- I mean, too carefully, I mean too casually, so to speak. Give people an opportunity to live. Give people an opportunity to bear fruit. Give people an opportunity to be tested by this world. As we say about our children, we say give them an opportunity to taste the flesh world and the devil and to say no. Does that make sense? I mean, there are some children that just know. Five years old, they're like, yeah, I love Jesus. And they're there, right? But then there are some children that we baptized that got baptized because they saw their other five-year-old friend who said they love Jesus. They don't know anything. They just saw their five-year-old friend go up there and say, hey, I want to get dipped in water too. Are you tracking with that? And so there are some times where you have to make the call to say, "Uh, I haven't heard any evidence here. Let's, Let's just let you live life for a little while. And then, and, then, and then we'll come back and we'll see where you are. Does that, does that make sense? Now, there's seed among the thorns here too. There's seed among rocky ground. There's seed among thorny ground. Matthew chapter 13, verse 7, it says, other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Jesus explains it in verse 22. He says, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And it proves Unfruitful. You know, this is the one that starts out, who comes to Jesus and hopes that Jesus will fix the cares of the world. He comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I hear you can make me healthier. Jesus, I hear you can make me wealthier. Jesus, I hear that you can make my family safe and protect it. person comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, you know, I hear you can make me more successful. I hear you can elevate me on my job. And when that doesn't happen, these folks say, what, what good is this Jesus? Why? why? If Jesus isn't going to help me get healthier, then what good is this Jesus? If Jesus isn't going to help me get wealthier, then what good is this Jesus? If Jesus isn't going to make me more successful, then what good is this Jesus. And they fall away too. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 through 10 says, but those who desire to be rich, listen to this, those who desire to be rich. In other words, those who set their, the, their desires and their ambition, ambition and their course of life on the idea of being rich. Not those that are rich, but those that set their course of life on simply being rich fall into temptation." fall into a snare, fall into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And this is what Paul tells Timothy in verse 10. For the love of money is the root root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some, listen, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Did you hear that? These are not people outside of the faith that Paul is talking about. These are people in the faith, in the church, whose heart and desire is set on the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And they chase it, and Paul says as a result of that chasing, they lose sight of God and they wander away from the faith, piercing themselves with many pains. In other words, hurting themselves in the pursuit. The pursuit hurts them unknowingly. That's the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches, we can chase it thinking that when we have it, we will be well. And all along, it's taking away from us. It's taking away from our humanity. It's taking away from our joy. It's taking away from our love. It's taking away from our thirst and our hunger for God. And we don't even know it. Oftentimes until it's too late. That's thorny ground. When the cares of the world... Choke out the world. I mean, choke out the word. I'm watching people more and more as I think about these two soils, as I think about the the rocky soil and the thorny soil. I'm watching people more and more go through what they are calling a season of deconstruction. I don't have an issue with that. There are some bad practices that have been attached to the name of Jesus Christ, and there are some. Bad allegiances that have paraded themselves as representing the name of Christ, when in fact they're nothing more than idolatry portrayed as the gospel, it's okay to deconstruct from those things. It's okay to detach from those things. So, yeah, I'm all about some deconstruction if that's what we're talking about. Change some doors out, <laughs> replace the roof, right? Update the windows. Pull up the carpet, put some new new hardwood down. I'm I'm all about some deconstruction. But when it goes from simply rethinking some of the ways in which I've been taught the faith to me renouncing altogether the faith, then the truth of the matter is my foundation was never Christ. It was never sure. This may be hard for us to understand, but it was never sure, it was never certain. Whatever I embraced, I embraced on a pretense of what Christ was going to do for me in this life, not what he was doing for me in the next, not the price that he had paid for me already. Do you understand that? Brother and sister, if you are in that season, I'm talking about those in the room, those that are watching online, if you are in that season of deconstruction, listen, again, I got no problem with you ridding yourselves of some of the things that have attached themselves to the gospel unknowingly and unhealthily. And I, I, and I, have, I, I, and I have no issue with any of that. But you, maybe you're saying to yourself, maybe it doesn't stop there, maybe I need to continue on. But before you walk, you must ask yourself the question or ask yourself this question, what was my hope in, in the first place? What did I hope in, in the first place? Did I hope in the opportunity for blessings? Did I hope in the opportunity to earn favor with a girl or a boy that I like? Did I, did I, did I hope in the opportunity to serve and to help people? Did I hope in the opportunity to adopt good moral conduct and behavior? Nothing wrong with any of those things, but none of those things can be your foundation. Christ, the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand. If they were your foundation, then deconstruction most likely only becomes a fancy word for departure. Here's the, true sober, here's the sober truth about deconstruction and departure, not deconstruction, but here's the sober truth about departure and defection from the faith. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, it says this, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. In other words, the soil was always in rocky ground. The seed was always cast in thorny ground. Sometimes it takes a little longer to see for it to manifest. But make no mistake about it, the ground was never sure. Speaking of sure ground, verse 8, it says, Other seeds fell on good soil, produced grains, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Jesus says in verse 23, explaining that, verse As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold. In another case, 60. And in another, 30. The seed, the word of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ is cast on the soul of good soil. And when it is cast on the soul of good soil, that person embraces Jesus. Not all of the attachments, not the promise of healthiness, not the promise of wealthiness, not the promise of success, not the promise of, you know, uh, getting a, a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend, not the promise of any of that. But Jesus, they realize, they realize the holiness of God, they see it clearly. And they see their sinfulness, and they realize that apart from Jesus, they are lost for eternity. And so when that seed of the gospel is cast, it hits good ground with delight and with joy because salvation has come. I don't care what else comes. Salvation has come. God has come near, and he will always be with me. And to that, I cling. True faith is reliance and dependence on what God has done in Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. That's what true faith is. It is reliance and dependence. It's not believing about, oh, well, I'm going to get this, or I'm going to get that. It is reliance and dependence on what Christ has done or what God the Father has done through Jesus Christ, bringing salvation to the lost. True faith is not looking to this life for the fulfillment of all the desires and all the wants that I have, but it is looking to the next saying that I will be with God, that I have God and God has me. Come with me. True faith understands that this life offers no guarantees. In fact, Jesus himself said, in this life, you will have trouble. But Take courage, for I have overcome the world. True faith is Peter in John chapter 6. When Jesus says, you have to eat of my flesh, drink of my blood, you have to intake me. And many of those people that were there for fish and loaves of bread said, man, that's a hard teaching. I'm not sure if I can stick around for this. And everybody abandons. Everybody departs. Jesus looks to the 12 and he says, will you go too? Peter responds, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. True faith is Job chapter one when when God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, in response to God, will he serve you for nothing? If I take away the pleasures, if I take away the success, If I take away the health, if I take away the wealth, will he still serve you? And the answer in the end is yes. Why? Because he had God. Yes, this walk can be extremely hard. And I know I'm running long, guys, but bear with me. This walk can be extremely hard at times. But where else am I going is the response of those that are settled in good ground. And who else has the words of eternal life? Yes, this wall can be extremely lonely at times, but where else am I going? And who else has the words of eternal life? No, this wall doesn't always bring an end to my suffering or the suffering of those that I love dearly. but say to God, where else am I going? And who else has the words? of eternal life. No, this walk doesn't guarantee that my relationships will be perfect. It doesn't guarantee that your spouse won't leave you. It doesn't guarantee that your parents or your kids uh, will love you like they should. It doesn't guarantee that people won't hurt you in some of the most offensive ways known to man. This walk doesn't guarantee that churches will be perfect. And this walk doesn't guarantee that pastors won't fleece their flocks, but saints of God Where else am I going? And who else has the words of eternal life? Y'all know I mention my father all the time. I use him all the time in my illustrations because you have to understand that without God's profound use of his life in my life, (laughs) <laughs> this, this doesn't exist probably. Early on when my father was, uh, with, was diagnosed with brain cancer, I remember having a conversation with him. And like so many of those conversations back then, I didn't understand or appreciate the talk nearly as much as I do now as an older man 10 years later. Nevertheless, we were having this conversation, he and I, He basically said, I'm praying for God to heal me. I know he can heal me. And then he said said this. He said, but even if he doesn't heal me, I would never turn my back on him. And he said this, I don't have anywhere else to go. Where else would I go? You have the words of eternal life. The faith that is sure understands that truth, understands that no matter what's happening here, no matter how hard life is for you right now, and I know, Saints, I know we're struggling. I know this church is struggling. I've talked to you on the phone, I've prayed with you, I know this church is struggling. But true faith says that this struggle, that these momentary afflictions, cannot compare to the weight of glory that shall be revealed to those that know Jesus and that have embraced him by faith, that have turned from their sin and turned to Christ. True faith says that I see you clearly, God. I see you for who you are. I know I know what I have in you and I would never relinquish that for the cares of this world or the trickery of riches. That's the faith that I'm inviting you to, brothers and sisters. That's what I'm calling you to. That's what I'm calling you to. Trust Jesus with that faith. Let's pray. God, we love you we thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy and your loving kindness